This is WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. This is Selena Della Croce. I am a coordinator at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research's Interregional Office, and today we'll be speaking with Manolo de los Santos and Subin Dennis. Manolo is a researcher at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research's Interregional Office and the founding director of the People's Forum, a movement incubator for working class communities based in New York City. He is a co-author of the text Corona Shock and Socialism and lived and worked in Cuba for many years. Subin Dennis is a researcher at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research's Delhi office and an economist and activist from Kerala, India. He was the Delhi State Vice President of the Students' Federation of India. He is also a co-author of the text Corona Shock and Socialism. Welcome to Indigo Radio. Um, I wanted to speak with both of you about the text that you recently published with Tricontinental Institute for Social Research on Corona Shock and Socialism. And so I'm wondering if to start, you could just give us a general overview of what you mean by when you write about Corona shock and the socialist approach to COVID-19. Corona shock is a term that we have used uh, in our studies to refer to how the coronavirus struck the world with gripping force and how the social order in the capitalist world was unable to deal with it in an effective manner, while at the same time, the social order in the parts of the world where the socialists are powerful and in many pla- many of those places the socialists or communists are in power there are in uh, there are certain other places where the efforts to build socialism is on so in these parts of the world uh, the governments and society have been able to tackle the pandemic and the crisis it has uh, given rise to in a much better fashion So it is this phenomenon that we refer to uh, while talking about corona shock. And in in this uh, particular study, corona shock and socialism, uh, we try to highlight the experiences of uh, those socialist states of Cuba, Venezuela, uh, and Vietnam, along with uh, the experience of Kerala, which is an Indian state. Uh, I mean, I have to say that uh, I have to state at the outset that Kerala is not a socialist country, I mean, it's not a socialist state. It is only a state within the capitalist country of India. But then Kerala uh, has a long tradition of uh, communism. Uh, its state government is uh, led by the Communist Party of India Marxist in coalition with uh, some other left parties. So that is why it comes into the picture as part of this study. So we are trying to highlight the experiences of uh, these parts of the world uh, in tackling the pandemic. Can you tell me a little bit what the approach has been like in Kerala and how that's different? I think that the example of Kerala is interesting because it's surrounded by a a very far-right government, um, federal government. And I'm interested in if you could tell me a little bit about what the response has been like in Kerala and and how that's been different from the rest of India. Kerala uh, managed to uh, reduce the hardships that the people had to face as a result of the lockdowns by ensuring a set of cushions for the working people, especially the workers who would struggle for their livelihoods if they don't work for a day or a week or several weeks in this case. Therefore, the Kerala government ensured that everybody has access to food by distributing food grains to all households for free for a month. It also announced various kinds of waivers for utility bill payments. It also ensured that community kitchens were set up in all localities, in every village, in every town. These community kitchens were run by local civil government institutions, along uh, with help from volunteers. And these volunteers came from all sorts of political, especially youth organizations, many of them being uh, members of left-wing organizations like the Democratic Youth Federation of India. Uh, all these volunteers were involved in helping run these community kitchens 
and cooked food was delivered from the community kitchens to those who are in need of such help so this is a system that work quite well and combined with all the measures to contain the pandemic itself the spread of infections along with a massive campaign called break the chain to encourage people to wear masks or wash their hands frequently to ensure physical distancing all of these so this campaign also took off quite well with various mass organizations trade unions women's organizations women's collectives uh, there is a major women's collective in kerala with about 4 and 1/2 million members it is called kudumbasri it is a network it was it is a collective of women's neighborhood groups which is supported by the government so they all were part of this campaign called break the chain more than 600000 people have come back to kerala from other parts of india and other parts of the world because more keralites were dying in other parts of uh, the world in other countries like us and so on then within kerala people were clamoring to come back to take refuge in kerala it it, it was seen as a safe haven at that point of time 600000 people coming in creates its own difficulties because uh, it is not always possible to you know quarantine them safely and kerala is still not a socialist state which is in control of all its resources therefore it has its limitations cases have been going up especially from june onwards still it's not the case that the situation in kerala is out of control our systems have not been overwhelmed and the kerala government has responded by expanding the public health care system it has it had already appointed that is hired more doctors and uh, other health workers and so on but also it set up many new covid care centers and it has now set up something called first line treatment centers so these are the places where people will be people especially the asymptomatic patients so they will be taken to first line treatment centers and from there if their symptoms worsen only then they will be taken to the hospital but the most basic treatment will be available in these first line treatment centers so the idea is to set first line treatment centers which can treat about 70000 patients uh, as of now kerala has about 28000 cases actually 11500 active cases and 87 deaths which is comparable to say cuba cuba has had 88 deaths vietnam has done much better it has had eight deaths uh, only eight deaths so far actually when we were writing our corona shocks uh, and socialism study vietnam has zero deaths after that its uh, number of cases has gone up a little but uh, it is still holding up very well so this is the this is the situation in kerala right now our systems are still in place holding up and hoping for the best and Uh, we are using uh, the strength of our mass and class organizations along with the robustness of our public health care system and the system of decentralized governance so all of these have come together to tackle the pandemic great thanks so much manal i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the response in cuba and venezuela and maybe in particular something that subin just touched on is how these existing organizations mass organizations decentralized government structures were much more perhaps much more apt to respond to covid-19 and i'm wondering if um in talking about cuba and venezuela you can touch a little bit on what um maybe what some of the key differences are in in those countries and the us for example that allowed the response to be so much more effective well for sure you know when looking at the cases of cuba and venezuela it's interesting to to note that in difference to many of the countries who are fighting against covid-19 right now the first challenge that these countries face is that they're under terrible and quite cruel sanctions um and blockades from the US government um that have international repercussions um cuba has been under a blockade for almost 60 years now venezuela has been under cruel sanctions for the last uh you know in in its hardest harshest phase for at least the last 3 or 4 years so for small countries who are under sanctions under blockades and then on top of that have to face an invisible enemy like covid-19 it really required in many ways a distinctive uh asset 
compared to most countries in around the world, which is use your state, the, the centrality of the state to marshal resources, to plan centrally, and to ultimately be able to put the lives of human beings above anything else. In the example of Cuba, immediately, you know, pretty much early on in January, um, Cuba began to heavily put research and study into what was COVID-19 and actually being in touch with, with the Chinese government to learn more about what was happening and, and think of ways and how to prepare. And before you knew it, Cuba had developed a sort of working group, a national working group made up of scientists, made up of economists, made up of different leaders from across the country to begin building a response. And that response was, A, how to use the central resources of the state to mobilize the country to defend itself from COVID-19. And how do you mobilize Cuba's vast human resources of doctors and prepare them and train them uh, to confront the virus? And by the time that the first cases were diagnosed in Cuba in March, Cuba was already prepared. A, it had already designated hospitals across the country to be able to isolate and, and treat people who would be infected. Two, it had trained its force of 95,000 doctors and 84,000 nurses on what the symptoms were. They developed a plan to be able to be able to go to every community in the country. I mean, Cuba is a small country and it doesn't compare to many other parts of the world, but in a country of 11 million people, they, they were able to develop a plan to actually reach every home, test for symptoms, and if necessary, refer people to the actual uh, antibodies test um, and PCRs in, only, in order to decide whether people needed to be isolated or not. Um, all of this is what has allowed Cuba, you know, at a high cost, because this has meant uh, an economic lockdown on top of these sanctions, but it has been able to, to keep uh, the death rate quite low. Sadly, 88 people have passed away in Cuba due to COVID-19. But there's been an immense struggle to make sure it doesn't pass beyond that um, and to see the, the speedy recovery of, of many people. And in Venezuela, the same thing. From an early on moment, the government, again, brought its scientists, brought its doctors together, and brought its leaders to plan um, using the resources of the state to guarantee that there would be uh, a correct and a scientific confrontation of COVID-19, um, one based on making sure that everyone uh, receives access to treatment and, and can be taken care of. Ultimately, these are the signs of societies that have progressed. We would say these are the socialist societies. These are societies that put human beings at the center. And because they put human beings at the center, it's also important to know that they wouldn't be able to do all of this if it hadn't been for the massive participation of civil society or mass organizations in both countries. In Cuba, you would see, for example, that 28,000 students came out voluntarily to participate in the process of checking symptoms uh, in every home. You had members of the Federation of Cuban Women, a mass organization of women, who took on the task of setting up centers all across the country to provide food, to prepare masks, to support people who were either under lockdown or under isolation. You had members of student organizations like the Federation of University Students who took on the task of staffing many of the isolation centers and making sure they were kept clean. Um, so these are all efforts that require massive participation of society in order to effectively fight. Uh, against COVID-19. Thanks so much. Um, some, an interesting parallel, I think, between just hearing both of you speak about the responses in Kerala and then also in Venezuela and Cuba is what all of these areas have been able to accomplish despite enormous obstacles. And in Kerala, I think there, a lot of that, Subin was saying, comes from the far right, which currently controls the federal government. 
And in Cuba and Venezuela, although the left is in power, there is this enormous obstacle posed by U.S. sanctions and imperialism. And I think I'm thinking about how in a U.S. context, I think often there's a sense of despair for people who do believe in science. And it seems like there's almost this endless situation of, you know, there's a complete lack of leadership, right? There is a complete disregard for science. There is a disregard for human life. And just, you know, how can we possibly move forward in that. And I think looking at these examples is really important for a U.S. audience because those are obstacles, I think, that exist in different levels in Kerala with the BJP federal government and in Cuba and Venezuela. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how these areas have been able to kind of mobilize public action and go ahead anyway. In a U.S. context, that means not just sitting around and thinking, oh, well, because the Trump administration isn't doing anything about it or because there's this disregard of science, you know, we can't do anything. I think like Cuba, Venezuela, and Kerala are very clear examples that despite obstacles, an enormous amount can be achieved. So I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if you could maybe just to wrap that up into a question, if, if you could speak a little bit to what that public action has looked like in those places. Well, I think the first the first step is always the right of people to information. From the beginning, the Cuban media and the mass organizations have consistently put out information about what is happening around the world. How is the world confronting COVID-19? What is COVID-19? How does it spread? How does it develop? As much as people, as much as is known, the Cuban government has emphasized the sharing of it because on people who are robbed of the right to to be conscious of a of a of a danger of an enemy are people who are then left in complete weakness and not able to confront the virus cuban society has centered around making sure everyone knows but another you know uh, putting into this context the question of sanctions and blockades you know in reality cuba because it's been facing these blockade for almost 60 years now and because the blockade effectively limits Cuba's access to medicine, to medical supplies, to equipment, Cuba in the last 60 years has had to develop its own biotechnology in order to prepare for moments like this. And luckily, Cuba had already developed medical uh, supplies enough to be able to respond to this moment. And Cuba had developed specific treatments for similar type of respiratory diseases um, and infections. And it was because of this and the fact that Cuba informed its people about what it had available and then shared this with the rest of the world is that there's been a better response to COVID-19 using the fact that it has so many doctors. I mean, it has an overwhelming number of doctors just compared to most countries around the world. These doctors became then the missionaries of truth and health being able to go to every neighborhood, to every community, talk to people face-to-face and, and explain in more detail what these things were and how to treat it and how to confront it. Therefore, fighting COVID-19 became a, a collective effort of, of the whole nation. Yes, if I can talk about Kerala, uh, there are parallels to what Manolo was saying about transparency uh, because Kerala is still not a socialist society. It has a substantial right wing. It has uh, media organizations, organizations which spread misinformation. Therefore, uh, it was very important that we ensure that the uh, most scientific and correct information is passed on to the general public. And the health minister of Kerala, KK Shailaja, she was regularly addressing the media. Uh, right from the beginning, from uh, late January and February and so on. Uh, But as weeks passed and the crisis became bigger, the efforts to tackle the pandemic had to be coordinated among different departments of the government. Therefore, uh, the efforts came to be led by the chief minister himself, the chief minister, Pinarayi Vijayan, who is a Politburo member of the Communist Party of India Marxist. So he started giving regular press conferences and that became the most important and reliable source of information about the pandemic what uh, the government is doing what the people should do all these basic information became available to the general public directly without the media you know without the mediation of uh, right-wing media so that became quite a, a very important 
instrument in, in Kerala's fight against coronavirus. And of course, uh, mobilizing the public. Hey, there is no comparison to Cuba because uh, Cuba's human resources uh, are enormous. I mean, 95,000 doctors for a population of 11 million people, that there is no parallel to that in any part of the world, any other part of the world. Of course, you, you know, Kerala also cannot stand up to that. I mean, doesn't compare to that. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we have mobilized the people, people who are already organized by, who are mobilized by uh, different mass organizations and class organizations and so on. So these are quite strong and big in Kerala. So they have been mobilized quite effectively, whether it is to run community kitchens or whether uh, it is to help people who are in care homes or old age homes uh, or people who are in quarantine, all of these, to ensure that people get food, people who need medicine, uh, get access to that. So all these efforts have been coordinated with the help of these mass organizations. And there is also the importance of the public sector, which is quite in contrast with other parts of uh, India itself and in, uh, and in contrast with many other parts of the world, especially the capitalist world. Uh, instead of leaving things entirely to the free market, the Kerala government mobilized its resources using its public sector enterprises. It has, for example, there is a pharmaceutical company which is run by the government, which is a public sector enterprise. So it increased its production of uh, drugs, essential drugs, uh, during this period of the pandemic. And uh, a number of such public sector institutions started producing masks, hand sanitizer, and so on. Of course, it has its limitations also because Kerala is not so much so industrialized. It has its limitations in producing, for example, ventilators. So that is some uh, that is a major limitation. As far as Kerala is concerned, it's not just a Kerala-specific limitation. It is something to do with India itself because uh, India is a capitalist country, but then it has embraced neoliberalism uh, in a full-fledged manner in the past few decades. And now there is a far-right uh, government led by the Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, uh, at the center in India. And it has been intent on privatizing everything, selling off every asset that belongs to the people. And it even tried to privatize India's district hospitals. That was one strong suggestion made by the BJP government uh, in the recent uh, in a few months back and Kerala uh, you know outright outrightly rejected that suggestion so it has had to battle uh, this attack <coughs> from the forces which are trying to impose neoliberal policies uh, in Kerala and there is resource constraint as well because um, in India most of the resources are under the control of the central government the state governments do not have the capacity, do not have the legal powers uh, of taxation. I mean, there are some taxes which the states can levy, but most of the taxation powers rests with the central government. And, and then the central government decides how much each state will get. I mean, there is a formula for that and there is a separate organization to devise that formula and so on. But some states like Kerala have been consistently discriminated against in the past few decades, precisely because Kerala is doing quite well uh, with regard to human development, that is education, healthcare, all of these. Uh, precisely because of that, and because Kerala's population growth rate is lower, uh, states like Kerala have been discriminated against with regard to uh, allocation of resources. So all of these problems are there, and the central government also is not willing to invest in education or healthcare. Uh, India has the worst healthcare system in the world, in the entire world. Uh, and uh, because precisely because its public investment in healthcare is among the lowest in the world. If you come, uh, take investment as a percentage of GDP as the measure. And when resources are mostly with the central government, if it doesn't invest in healthcare, this is what we get. So such constraints are there and it is, uh, you know, when it comes to production of things like ventilator, when it tries to weaken, when the central government is trying to weaken the very industries which would have been able to produce such things, 
then the entire response of the healthcare system in india gets compromised so that is what has happened in india and it has uh, been especially a problem in many other indian states where public healthcare systems have been overwhelmed actually in many states uh, governments have just given up they are not even test- I, i used to live in delhi uh, until a few months back there the government has come, uh, almost given up uh, they have reduced the number of tests uh, and let the people do whatever they can on their own that is what is happening and because they 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 are not testing it seems that the number of cases are coming down and that breeds more even more complacency among the people so uh, in in places like delhi or mumbai or bangalore uh, hospitals have been overwhelmed and they don't don't have enough beds they don't have enough ventilators uh, to uh, you know, treat patients and uh, public health care systems are quite weak in these states as a result people have to uh, people have to depend on private hospitals which uh, and and the and treatment is very expensive even for middle class people uh, it is very expensive fortunately uh, our systems have not been overwhelmed in kerala public health care system is holding on and our contact tracing uh, system is uh, still robust uh, so uh, by mobilizing the people uh, just as manolo was saying in the case of cuba and so on uh we are also managing to uh, respond to this pandemics quite well i wonder i think it's important to highlight a little bit what you're both saying that there i mean there are tremendous obstacles both in that face kerala cuba and venezuela but when you look at the numbers just to kind of put them together in cuba there have been 88 deaths venezuela there have been i believe as of today 187 kerala 87 and in the united states which is imposing these sanctions there have been 157,000 deaths uh, 160,000 deaths now yeah yes. it's growing so fast just like looked at the numbers this morning but so i think you know i'm wondering despite all of these obstacles both by the central government in india and by the by the us with sanctions where the resources have been able to be found for these responses because despite having less resources the responses are clearly much more effective maybe in particular with regards to cuba and venezuela i think it's interesting to look at in the in the study you wrote about the oil tankers from iran that came to venezuela because venezuela hasn't been able to process a lot of its own oil also as a result of the sanctions and i'm wondering what the prospects are you know there's been a, a tremendous amount of solidarity from across these countries from cuba in the form of doctors and medicine venezuela in the form of oil well before the pandemic and i'm wondering first of all where the resources have come from to have such effective responses despite the challenges and also what the prospects are for building a stronger socialist bloc in the face of resource starvation from the US and far right forces well you know the for the last 30 almost 40 years now there's been a a a boogeyman in in international relations and international talk which is central planning central planning has been um tarnished as being an evil concept that would seek to control people's lives um and we've been living through the nightmare of neoliberal politics of privatization of the erosion of central planning in the state for this period and now we're seeing the consequences well i think cuba and the example of kerala and other uh socialist states points out to a, a different example to the centrality of of why we need the state because it's not that states don't have resources it's not that countries don't have resources even in the case of cuba and venezuela and others where there are limited resources but there are resources it's a matter of how they are organized and how they are used and and what is the the logic and the focus towards using these resources what has saved cuba throughout these 60 years of blockade and, and what has saved cuba now is that it actually has central planning it actually thinks clearly about how to make best use of its resources knowing its own limitations to make sure that every human being is guaranteed a life with dignity with access to their basic human rights and if you add to that central planning of resources you also have what i've mentioned before which is cuba has 
the greatest resource of them all, which is human resources. Not only has it been able to train over hundreds of thousands of of medical workers in its own country, which is amazing when you consider that at the start of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, Cuba was left with less than 3,000 doctors for a, a, a country at that moment of, of 9 million people. So it's an important thing to have, have been able to develop its, its medical workers. And then on top of that, we have to also recognize that Cuba has been training medical human resources for people around the world. And this is part of Cuba's belief that if it's not able to fight for others, it won't be capable of fighting for itself. Internationalism or international solidarity have been ingrained in the outlook of the Cuban people in these 60 years of revolution. In fact, one of the most beautiful things that we've seen in this this fight against COVID-19 is that many of the over 30,000 foreign doctors who've trained in Cuba are now working in their countries, in places like Haiti, in Venezuela, in Chile, in Peru, in South Africa, in many parts of the world, in Mongolia, as leaders in their own countries fighting against COVID-19, learning from the Cuban methodologies and the Cuban approach to healthcare. And an extension of that is that Cuba has sent doctors and medical brigades to over 24 countries at this point to be a source of aid and support to many of these countries in this, in this difficult moment. But it's also received a lot of support. I mean, Cuba has been receiving tons of aid from the People's Republic of China. It has received aid from Iran, from Russia, from multiple other countries. Um, and again, ultimately, it has been shaped by a focus and approach that people come first. That the right of people to live is more important than the right to accumulate profit. And that has ultimately been the distinction between the socialist model and that other model, which has been one of death, of exclusion, of individualism, of anti-science that is reigning in most parts of the world. Yes, I completely agree with Manolo, especially the point he made about the importance of central planning. It is very clear that the response of states which have been able to better plan their economy, especially states which have central planning and which can organize their economy, which are in control of their resources and deploy them effectively. So their responses have been far superior to the responses of capitalist uh, states across the world. Unfortunately for Kerala, Kerala is, again, as I said earlier, it is a state within a capitalist country with very limited powers, both legal powers and economic powers. I mean, it does not have control over its own resources uh, fully. Therefore, there are certain limitations which Kerala has had to face. Uh, and uh, in the face of such difficulties, how how has Kerala managed to stand up to the challenge? I would say a large part of that has come from the voluntary labor of people. I mean, it's not forced labor. I mean, nobody is being forced to uh, work in community kitchens and so on. I have had the opportunity to visit a few community kitchens in Trivandrum which is the capital city of Kerala. I'm staying in Trivandrum uh, these days. And uh, when I visited these community kitchens, I saw that they are being run by volunteers from the trade union of government employees of local self-governments, basically municipal employees. So they were running the uh, community kitchens. Uh, They didn't really have to, you know, it's not part of their job. You know, it, it, they have to work only for eight hours a day. They can uh, choose not to come to the community kitchen, but they volunteered themselves. They, uh, you know, they came to the community kitchens very early in the morning, uh, did w- various kinds of work there, and then went to the office. And then once uh, office work is done, they come back to the community kitchen again. So that kind of effort has been made by people who have been mobilized by 
the mass and class organizations of uh, Kerala. Also, uh, there has been uh, massive amounts of volunteer work by the women's collective that I mentioned earlier, Kudumbasri. Uh, it's not, I mean, it is also uh, a part of economic production from their side because they have set up a number of people's restaurants. So these are restaurants uh, uh, which provide cooked food at very affordable or rather very cheap rates. So uh, it is partly voluntary labor, also partly uh, economic production. So these kinds of efforts have been made uh, to overcome the challenge of resource constraint. Uh, because right now, uh, as far as material resources are concerned, especially tax revenue and so on, tax revenue has completely collapsed, especially during the lockdown, economic activity was minimal. Uh, so there was hardly any revenue coming in. And uh, the central government was supposed to provide funds to the state governments as part of something called compensation, compensation for having implemented the goods and services tax in India. So when that tax was implemented, the central government had said that it will compensate the states for the revenue loss that they will have to face when this particular tax is implemented. But the central government has flatly refused to give this compensation, especially during this pandemic time. So as a result, all states in India are strapped for resources. They are all desperate right now. So Kerala has been able to uh, manage during the, this time, particularly because of its, of its public action, which has been as important as uh, the public sector. Uh, and of course, uh, perhaps I should add that there has also been an effort by the right-wing forces within Kerala to sabotage the efforts of the government. Uh, because this has been a time when Kerala's efforts to contain the pandemic has won widespread acclaim. Therefore, it's the left government's popularity has gone up, which of course the right-wing doesn't like. Therefore, they have uh, tried to spread all kinds of misinformation they have uh, staged some uh, protest demonstration and, and so on with no norms being followed or all the norms that we have for physical distancing so all these uh, are being deliberately flouted because if you look at the protests that have so far been carried out by left organizations in in india mostly they have followed uh, they have tried to follow physical distancing norms but uh, within kerala the right wing forces have staged some protest demonstrations uh, where these norms have been completely flouted, not just protest demonstrations, they have been going around attending events where there are a lot of people in attendance. And then they travel across the state, uh, spreading that infection to even more people. So, uh, and of course, carrying out a campaign against uh, something called the Chief Minister's Distress Relief Fund, because uh, Kerala's not just Kerala, but every state government is strapped for resources. Uh, all these governments have distress relief funds to which the general public can contribute. And that fund can be used for providing relief to the people. So people are voluntarily contributing uh, whatever little amount or big amount they have to the chief minister's distress relief fund. And the right wing forces in Kerala have campaigned against this. They have urged people to not contribute to the chief, chief minister's distress relief fund. And uh, they have urged the government employees, because there are right-wing government employees uh, organizations also. So they have uh, opposed uh, a, a part of their salary being uh, temporarily transferred to the chief minister's distress relief fund. So all these kinds of efforts of sabotage are going on. Uh, and there have been efforts, uh, for example, there, there are some coastal areas in Kerala where uh, the number of infections are a little high. So uh, some extra restrictions had to be put in there. But then again, right-wing forces like Congress and BJP and so on have spread misinformation among the communities there and uh, told them that, see, the government is lying. You know, there are actually not so many cases. Uh, so you don't have to worry. So you should prevent health workers to, uh, from coming into this area. And uh, as a result, 
some of the uh, people who were misled by this campaign stopped health workers from coming into that area and testing and screening and testing people so that made things worse of course things were made uh, brought under control in a few days not a few days just one or two days but it had done its damage because during that time these safety norms had been violated and uh, more people had been infected so these are challenges that we have had to fight that is both internal sabotage and pressure from the central government uh, so it is a heroic fight uh, the people of kerala have been putting up i'm i'm not sure if if it, if it can be compared to the heroic efforts of cuba and venezuela who are directly under attack from imperialism nevertheless these challenges are also quite steep i want to just touch on something that you both mentioned you both talked about the role and the importance of central planning and also um decentralized public action and i think in thinking of speaking to in particular us audience on this radio there's often kind of this discussion in progressive spaces in the us that an idea of centralization or central planning is somehow anti-democratic and i think suben what you were saying about the attack of the right wing and manolo what you're saying about kind of imperialist forces is really important to think about in this context where if we you know if if we're really trying to build a world that that puts power behind the working class in a class struggle um and there is a lot you know there's a very strong right wing force that needs to be fought against and i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role of organized central power and also decentralized public action in this context and why maybe it's not enough just to have small scattered organizations that are able to maybe intervene and provide aid on a very local level but haven't been able to harness as much power as in these different as in the socialist states that you're talking about well it's important i think to recognize that in many parts of the world there have been organizations individuals small collectives of people who who have initiated mutual aid projects i think inspired by many of the same values of cuba kerala venezuela vietnam china and others um of caring for other human beings and we have to applaud that mm-hmm. but i think what has become clearer after the rise of covid-19 and and the crisis that that it didn't usher in but that it has you know unmasked the the crisis of capitalism around the world is that while we may have believed in the last 30 years that the role of the state was not important and that we as movement people and as progressive people didn't need concern us ourselves with the question of the state it's in our faces now that without a state the lack of a state or states that misuse their role their power their resources in moments of like this will only lead to further death states that do not care about the question of hunger states that do not care about the question of unemployment states that do not care for essentially the lives of their own citizens are in crisis only only the only states the only countries where we have seen massive uh responses to this crisis in which there hasn't been hunger there hasn't been un- there hasn't been unemployment there hasn't been you know a uh, a retreat on the rights of citizens and on and of human beings have been countries where the straight the state has played a central role and i think we have to acknowledge it i think for people outside of these socialist countries it really up to us now to to say our struggles for a better humanity our struggles for dignity our struggles for the rights of everyone in our societies are going to have to go through transforming the capitalist states we live in and putting them at the service of the of everyone of, of the whole collective of society and i think that's a a, a hefty challenge that will force us in many ways to to change our paradigm our approach to many of the politics we engage in because ultimately we will realize that it's not only a question of the struggles of black people in the united states it's not only a question of the struggle of immigrants in the united states or women but of how do we come together as different sectors of society of sectors of a large majority of people whose lives are being put at stake 
how are we willing to, how are we going to be able to take our lives back? How are we going to be able to actually create something that centers the lives of everyone involved? So our lives can actually matter. So our lives are actually being able to, to live with dignity. Yes, if I can uh, add to the points that Manoto made, uh, this this pandemic is a time when really the importance of uh, central planning has come to the fore, and uh, it is important to recognize that both are important: central planning and uh, elements of decentralization. There are some things that are done better at the lower lower levels: uh, decentralized public action or uh, mobilizing volunteers from the village or from uh, the locality and so on. So these have to be done at the local level, obviously. So there are some things that are better done by local self-government institutions. I am using that terminology because that is the term that is used in India. Uh, but then it is quite obvious that there are many other things that cannot be done at the level of a village or a town. Uh, just remember uh, the hu two huge hospitals that the Chinese government set up uh, in the space of uh, a week or 10 days. That would not have been possible at the level of a village. Isn't that quite obvious? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm myself from a village. I know that my village cannot produce everything that it needs. Uh, it is uh, mostly uh, populated by farmers and the main crop is rubber. So we have rubber trees in our village, which means that we are not food self-sufficient. We don't produce food grains. And even if, if we wanted to produce food grains, we cannot because the terrain is not suitable for that. On the other hand, there are other places uh, where you can grow rice. Now, those villages have to produce rice. Otherwise, there will be uh, a shortage of food, not only in that village, but in all other parts of uh, the state. I mean, Kerala itself is not food self-sufficient because it produces a lot of uh, other crops which are useful uh, for other parts of India. So it is a give and take. So Kerala produces cash crops and other parts of India produce food grains. It has been an arrangement that has been going on for several decades uh, under the aegis of uh, the central government itself. So that was a time when there was more economic planning in India. So these things are quite important to recognize. You can have a primary healthcare center perhaps run by village local government, but you cannot have a huge uh, super specialty hospital uh, at least in the indian context it is not possible with the available uh, available resources uh, of village local governments and so on it is not possible for them to set up big hospitals on their own or to have big research institutes or to have a, a, a pharmaceutical company which will produce drugs that is simply impossible for a local self-government uh, so these things have to be managed at the level of at a higher level. It it depends on the size uh, of the government, of course, but uh, it is fairly possible uh, for most Indian states. They are fairly large and they have adequate resources to set up most kinds of public sector institutions. Actually, I should correct myself. Not every public sector institution, because there are some public sector institutions which are which require even more. Uh, resources and that kind of resources are available only with the central government so that is why for example kerala is struggling with production of ventilators and currently the kind of institutions that are producing ventilators in india are for example the ordnance factories these are this is an this is a public sector enterprise which produces weapons for the indian army and they have the expertise uh, to produce things like ventilators and personal protective equipment and so on. And the, the interesting thing to note is that the far right BJP, which all the time talks about national security, you know, uh, they, that they keep claiming that they are going to make India a superpower and, and all sorts of things, but they are even privatizing defense production. They have, they were trying to weaken the ordnance factories by outsourcing the production of various things. So, and during this time of pandemic, the ordnance factories came to the rescue by, by starting 
to produce uh, personal protective equipment and ventilators so as i was saying so there are things that have to be produced and coordinated at the central level and there are things that are better done at the local level so both are important and it is only with a recognition of this fact that we will be able to build a better system which can take care of people's needs rather than uh, the profits of corporations great um well i want to thank you both so much for your time where we have a, a few minutes left so i'd just like to just pivot to thinking a little bit about what the future might look like i think there's clearly a lot of uncertainty right now it's very clear that this seems or at least to me that this seems like a very definitive moment like things are not going to go back to the way that they were I'm not sure what they're going to look like. And so on the one hand, I'm thinking a little bit about, you know, Naomi Klein, I believe you're both familiar with the book The Shock Doctrine wrote about how often disasters whether natural or man-made are used as a way to impose policies that very unpopular policies that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Privatization, she talked about basically destruction of public schools in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And yeah, on the one hand I'm thinking about what you know what the world could look like after after the pandemic the study did an incredible job of laying out what the world could look like and what the world does look like in certain you know in certain areas of the world under a socialist direction and i'm wondering you know on the one hand if you think that there is an element of that discussion of disaster capitalism and forcing unpopular reforms or on the other hand what the future could look like and i'm in a, perhaps a much brighter way. And Vijay Prashad, who's the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, he wrote in a newsletter last year, which has really stuck with me, that, quote, it tells us a lot that it is easier to imagine the end of the earth than to imagine the end of capitalism, to imagine the polar ice cap flooding us into extinction than to imagine a world where our productive capacity enriches all of us. And so I think there are these kind of two big possibilities swirling around of, of what maybe the right wants to impose, use the pandemic to impose and has in certain areas. And on the other hand, what is possible and what the study that you both and others have done to show us the other end of what's possible. And so it's maybe perhaps a lot to roll into one question, but if you could talk about what prospects you see for the future and for, um, for the possibility of, of strengthening socialist projects in the world. There's been a push by many capitalist countries, primarily the U.S., of this going back to normal or going back to the way things were. But that is highly unlikely in this current scenario. There is, there is no normal to go back to. And being honest, I don't know if the majority of people want to go back to the normal in which there was already hunger, there was massive unemployment, there was threats of eviction that have only become worse in this period. That's not the normal we would want to. And I think progressives and peace-loving people and people who, who believe in changing society, this is a moment for us to talk about the alternatives that exist on this planet. That we don't have to envision only the doom and, and end of the planet, but we can actually envision a society where things can be drastically different. Things are actually pointing to the fact that I think millions of people are on the planet are actually asking themselves many of these same questions. Why do we have to continue living like this? Why, why do our lives have to be a consistent crisis, an ongoing crisis? And I think while for many, this has been a moment of, of sadness, but it's also served in, in a sense the corona shock. The shock element has also shocked many of us into consciousness again, and shocked us into, I think, uh, a mood and a sense of, this is our moment to fight back, and this is our moment to actually build and construct alternatives within uh, these capitalist societies in order to fight for a better future. Yes, as Serena was saying earlier, uh, India is a very good example of the right-wing government uh, trying to impose unpopular policies using the pandemic as a good opportunity uh, not just because people are under shock but also the sheer impossibility of mass protests when there are severe restrictions and fear of infections uh, you know, in place in the country so uh, the government is pretty certain that there wouldn't be 
mass protests, people wouldn't hit the street in large numbers uh, if it imposes certain kinds of policies. So in that confidence, uh, the far-right government in India has gone ahead and uh, weakened labor laws in India. It has. It is now trying to privatize uh, railways. Uh, it has uh, announced a new education policy, uh, which is quite anti-student uh, in uh, various ways. So uh, these are things that the far-right central government in India has been doing, uh, using this opportunity, and it has been jailing. It has been imprisoning. Uh, you know, critics of the government. Uh, there are several uh, intellectuals and civil society activists and so on who have been put in prison. Even students have been put in prison under draconian laws uh, due to various reasons. It might be because they were part of some people's movements. They were part of some student protests. They might have just written a few, you know, uh, articles. Uh, in research journals and so on, criticizing the government. So all these have made them enemies of the state, enemies of the uh, BJP, and they have been put in jail uh, and for months on end. And the, the, there is not even adequate evidence against these people, even with regard to the kind of allegations that have been made against them. So uh, there are things to be worried about in India. So the record is quite mixed as far as the Indian situation is concerned. There are some bright spots like Kerala. There is probably some bright spot in uh, the state of West Bengal where the left was really strong. Uh, it, the left was in power in West Bengal from 1977 to 2011. After that, uh, it declined, it lost power there and uh, had, has suffered decline. But during the pandemic, the communists in West Bengal have gone on a major drive, doing a lot of relief effort and providing a lot of succor to the people, bringing them food, bringing them you know, healthcare in various ways. There are <coughs> people's committees which function there, which it is somewhat like the revolutionary doctors of the Telugu states that Tricontinental talked about in a those earlier. Uh, so there are communist doctors who work in West Bengal, and under their guidance, there are committees which function to make healthcare more accessible to people. So there are such efforts, it, and it is gaining more popularity in West Bengal. We don't know yet whether it will have long-term effects or not. Uh, it's quite early to say. So there are some bright spots and on the other, other hand, there are things to be pessimistic about as well because of all these attacks and not sufficient uh, resistance to such attacks in many other parts of India. And, and the BJP government is trying to bring even more in their religious strife into Indian society. So this is again an issue on which people get polarized on religious lines. So there are things to be uh, disheartened about also, but again, there are things to be uh, optimistic also. I'm not sure what the overall balance is. I think there are things to be even more op optimistic about when we look at mass protests uh, in the United States and so on. And probably a much better consciousness or awareness of the importance of public health care, importance of the public sector, the importance of some amount of uh, planning or control over private corporations. These are hopefully uh, being increasingly more, uh, increasingly taken more seriously by people across the world, at least in several parts of the world, not so much in India. So there is a mixed record. So if we consider socialism or barbarism to be the choices between uh, in, in front of humanity, well, the pessimism of the intellect will definitely tell us that uh, barbarism is a possibility that cannot be ruled out. But then the optimism of the will tells us that we should still struggle to prevent that from happening and instead progress to you know, transition 
we should struggle to build socialism by overthrowing capital i want to thank you both so much for your time um and for bringing this this perspective and all this information to indigo radio i want to encourage people to follow and subscribe to the tricontinental.org the text corona shock and socialism as part of a series on corona shock so again you can read this text and others at the tricontinental.org in english spanish and portuguese and i want to thank suben and manolo so much for your time and your perspective and your work to end we'll hear a set of chants from kerala in malayalam the main part of the chant means build a thousand schools not churches or mosques build workplaces not new temples <laughs> Alli alla 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 alli al